0: Biographical Bites from Bala, number 7, for April 2022. Francis Xavier Durkham, M.D., a man who changed history. Clara Durkham, M.D., a fighter for women's rights. Susanna Durkham, a contralto for Stokowski and Mahler. Welcome to the seventh episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is a historic and active cemetery in Bala-Kinwood, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. It's larger than Laurel Hill. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population like laurel hill it is open 365 days a year now from 7 a.m till 7 p.m there's plenty of parking at the business office just off belmont avenue or at the bell tower if you enter on belmont follow the road with the white line in the middle another possibility is to just duck in while you're walking the kidwood trail Your best bet for public transportation is probably to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue and then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. Our seventh episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is from mid-April 2022. It tells you of a physician who grew up and trained in Philadelphia and was called as a consultant when President Woodrow Wilson had his stroke in 1919. When Wilson's widow, Edith, wrote her memoirs, she insisted that it was Dr. Durkham who had encouraged her to run things while Woodrow recovered. If true, the world may be a different place because of his suggestion. Francis's sister Clara also became a physician. She spent much of her career giving charity care to the poor in Philadelphia while working tirelessly for women's rights. Their half-sister Susanna went in a different direction. She became Leopold Stokowski's choice for the voice of Maria Egyptica when he conducted the American premiere of Mahler's Eighth Symphony in Philadelphia in 1916. What I had intended as a half-hour program quickly spread to almost twice that this month in Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories. Francis Xavier Durkham, M.D., 1856-1931, A Man Who Altered History. Woodrow Wilson was a neurological nightmare. In 1896, when he was only 40 years old, he had a small stroke that nearly paralyzed his right hand and arm for about six months. It was so bad that he taught himself to write left-handed and to type He blamed his malady on writer's cramp. In 1904, he had another small stroke, not quite as bad as the first. But on May 28, 1906, the then 50-year-old president of Princeton University awoke to find himself blind in his left eye this central retinal artery occlusion was almost certainly from carotid artery atherosclerotic disease and hypertension, and for the rest of his life, Wilson had only peripheral vision in that bad eye. He also developed what at the time was called neuritis, which plagued him off and on throughout his life, but may have been a series of mini-strokes or TIAs. In 1912, about the time Wilson was elected president of the United States, famed Philadelphia neurologist, Silas Ware-Mitchell did a thorough history and physical examination on him and confided that Wilson could not possibly live to the end of his first term. When Wilson moved into the executive mansion, he requested that Dr. Kerry Travers Grayson stay on as his private physician. Grayson, who studied medicine at the Medical College of Virginia and then trained at Johns Hopkins under the highly esteemed William Osler, had served as White House physician for Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. He met Wilson for the first time on Inauguration Day, the 4th of March, 1913, and they took a liking to each other. Wilson asked him to stay and they became good friends. Grayson placed Wilson on Osler's a regimen for hypertension. Simple diet, regular exercise, golf at least three times a week and horseback riding, a limited work schedule and as little stress as possible. Once the United States entered the Great War in 1917, Wilson's anti-stress lifestyle went out the window, especially between March and November of 1918, when domestic mobilization and large-scale American participation on the Western Front greatly exacerbated stress and required long hours of daily work. Wilson also became uncharacteristically irritable His trip to Europe for the Paris Peace Conference seemed to give him some respite, but then the bottom fell out. On the 3rd of April 1919, Wilson came down with high fever, delirium, and encephalitis. He was diagnosed with influenza in the dying days of that worldwide pandemic. On the 28th of April, he suffered another small stroke. This led to significant personality changes, memory loss, and bizarre behavior. When he returned to the United States in early July, it was obvious that he was not well, and he was unable to function at his usual level of political skill. On 19 July, the Wilson suffered what has to be called a large, transient ischemic attack. It was apparent that his hypertension had reached a malignant state. Despite this, Wilson insisted he should go on a national tour in the western part of the country to push for the controversial Versailles Peace Treaty. The trip became a physical nightmare for the president on account of blinding headaches, asthma attacks that kept him awake at night, and emerging congestive heart failure. After Wilson had another TIA on the 26th of September, Dr. Grayson, who had traveled with the president, forced him to cancel the rest of the trip. The presidential train arrived back in Washington, D.C. two days later. Despite familiar surroundings and faces, the president remained restless. The final disaster struck at about 8.30 a.m. on Thursday, 2 October 1919. Wilson collapsed while sitting on a toilet, presumably straining its stool. He fell forward, lacerating his forehead and nose on exposed bathroom plumbing. His wife, Edith, found him unresponsive on the bathroom floor and summoned Dr. Grayson. Wilson had suffered a major stroke that totally paralyzed his left side, almost certainly from an occlusion of the right carotid artery. Dr. Grayson immediately called a number of consultants, the most prominent of whom was Dr. Francis Xavier Durkham of the Jefferson Medical College of Philadelphia. As you might surmise from his name, Francis Xavier Durkham was a descendant of English Catholics who had migrated to France during the reign of Henry VIII to avoid persecution from the new religion. Two of his ancestors occupied professorial chairs in the University of Würzburg in Germany. Durkham's father Ernest 1823 to 1899 migrated to Philadelphia after the failure of the 1848 German Revolution. He married Susanna Earhart, 1824 to 1866, an, quote, American girl of Alsatian extraction, end quote. Francis's early education was received primarily in the public schools of Philadelphia and secondarily in the Central High School. He graduated with an MA degree in 1873. Remember that Central High School is allowed to give MA degrees. At age 18, he entered the medical department of the University of Pennsylvania and graduated three years later in 1877. After postgraduate summer school, he was also awarded a Ph.D. He set up his practice and he waited for patients to find him. In 1878, he was elected a member of the Academy of Natural Sciences, where he established relationships with Joseph Lighty, Edward Drinker Cope, John Ryder. Henry C. Chapman, and many other pioneers of the 19th century scientific community in Philadelphia. In the first year of his membership, he prepared and read a paper entitled The Morphology of the Lateral Lines in Fishes. But Durkham soon discovered his real interest was in neurology. He joined in the studies of anatomist Dr. Andrew J. Parker, who was devoting himself to the study of the morphology of the brain and its convolutions. As they carefully stimulated certain areas of the brain, they noted which cells led to muscle movement of the body. As they destroyed small areas of the brain, they were able to map the concomitant loss of function. They did similar studies with sensory functions. Durkheim and Parker worked together until the untimely death of the latter from pneumonia at age 36 in 1892. Dr. Parker is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section B, Lot 141. Durkheim then studied with Horatio C. Wood professor of nervous and mental diseases at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1883, he was appointed chief of the dispensary for nervous diseases in the medical school of the university, and in 1887, at age 31, Francis X. Durkham was appointed neurologist to the Pennsylvania Hospital, a position he occupied for the next 20 years. In 1884, Durkham, in association with Dr. Charles K. Mills—more about him in an upcoming podcast— Dr. Wharton Sinkler, who had fought with the Confederacy during the Civil War, Dr. J.T. Eskridge, and others, realized that the relatively new science of neurology would be advanced if the neurological students of Philadelphia were given the opportunity to cooperate in investigations and discussions— and they formed the Philadelphia Neurological Society with Silas Ware Mitchell as their first president. The PNS established a program of monthly meetings from October through April at the College of Physicians, which was then located at 13th and Locust Streets. This precedent for location and timing of meetings has continued to this very day, even as the college moved to its current location on 22nd Street. Durkin became heavily involved with the organization, serving as vice president in 1894-95, president in 1896, and counselor in 1897-99 and 1905. In 1892, the Jefferson Medical College created a Chair of Nervous and Mental Diseases to which Dr. Durkham was appointed with a seat on the faculty. He developed a series of clinical lectures which were illustrated by well-selected cases provided by his large and well-organized dispensary service which he had founded and developed. He was following in the footsteps of Charcot in Paris with these live patient demonstrations. He stayed at Jefferson for 33 years teaching and seeing patients, and he also published. Between 1892 and 1919 his name was on 170 papers. That's more than six papers a year over that 27-year period. In 1892 Francis Xavier Durkham married Elizabeth de Haven Comley, a member of an old Philadelphia family, and they had two daughters. It was also in 1892 that Durkham recognized the similarity of three unrelated cases from the various nervous wards in Philadelphia. His description included nodules of soft tissue deposited in the upper or lower extremities, subsequently makes its appearance elsewhere, may become very extensive, enlargement irregular, and even capricious at some time or other, accompanied by pain or other nervous system symptoms, a connective tissue dystrophy, a fatty metamorphosis. Inasmuch as fatty swelling and pain are the most prominent features of the disease, I propose for it the name Adiposis Dolorosa. French writers renamed Adiposis Dolorosa. They called it Maladie de Durkama. Soon the rest of the world was calling it Durkheim's disease. Durkheim's disease is defined by 1. Multiple painful fatty masses 2. Generalized obesity, usually in women of menopausal age 3. asthenia, weakness, and fatigability 4. Mental disturbances, including emotional instability, depression, epilepsy, mental confusion, and dementia treatment is primarily symptomatic with no hope of cure. There is an online support group at Durkham's.org. And someone that we met briefly in an earlier podcast actually suffered from Durkham's disease, Louise Bryant whose second husband was journalist and revolutionary John Reed, and third husband was Philadelphian John Christian Bullitt, whose first wife was her drinker Bullitt Barlow, subject of an earlier podcast. Louise spent the last years of her life in misery from this malady. Now, as Durkham's reputation spread, he was awarded membership in the Royal Medical Society of Budapest, the Neurological Society of Vienna, the Society of Neurology of Paris, and the Royal Medical Society of Great Britain. His reputation was such that in 1918, he became the personal physician for the First Lady of Texas, the oddly named Miss Ima Hogg. Ima Hogg was the wealthy daughter of Governor Big Jim Hogg. She studied piano in Europe and became even richer when oil was discovered on her property. Her art collection was legendary and she was the primary force behind the founding of the Houston Symphony Orchestra. When she suffered with a debilitating depression, she entrusted her care to Durkham and she was hospitalized in Philadelphia for more than a year. By the summer of 1923, Miss Hogg was fully recovered and she donated millions of dollars to the betterment of treatment for mental health issues in Texas. Her status in Texas is legendary. When Durkham arrived in Washington, he was met at the railway station by Dr. Grayson, who took him immediately to examine the president. The outlook was not good. He submitted his thoughts to Dr Grayson. Quote, "The diagnosis was made on October 2nd and confirmed at the subsequent examinations was that of a severe organic hemiplegia probably due to the thrombosis of the middle cerebral artery of the right hemisphere. At the time of the first examination the diagnosis was communicated to Mrs Wilson and Miss Margaret Wilson." The subsequent course of the case revealed the hemiplegia to be persistent. Notwithstanding, because of the improvements noted at various times, Dr. Grayson thought it wise to issue general statements only. Wilson's impairment was devastating and more than likely permanent. In addition to hemiplegia, Wilson suffered other manifestations of major disturbance of the right brain hemisphere. With the paralysis and loss of sensation on the left side of his body, he also suffered a left homonymous hemianopsia. That's a loss of vision in the left half-fields of both eyes. Since he had pre-existing loss of central vision of the left eye from the 1906 stroke, Wilson now had clear vision only in the temporal half-field of his right eye. He had difficulty swallowing. His voice was weak and dysarthric. His speech never regained its normal modulation, resonance, or fluency. By the end of October, Wilson was taken out of bed and placed in a chair, but he still could not support himself. It was not until after Christmas that he could stand and walk a few steps with the assistance of a cane. When he tried to smile or speak, his facial droop became even more prominent. So the president grew a beard and a mustache. And as with many people with right hemispheric lesions, he developed hemi-inattention, he tended to ignore any visual or auditory signals that came from his left side. Even more frightening was Wilson's anosognosia, literally lack of knowledge of disease. President Wilson denied that he was paralyzed or had lost a vast majority of his sight. His mood was inappropriate. Despite severe incapacities, The patient seemed calm and unconcerned. Wilson did not deny that he was physically ill. He realized that the use of his limbs was impaired. He referred to himself euphemistically as lame, but he did not believe that his illness prevented him from properly carrying on his duties. So he did not declare himself disabled. When Durkham took his report to Mrs. Wilson she was absolutely opposed to the details of her husband's illness being given to the public. When Edith Wilson wrote her memoirs years later, 1939, this is the way she remembered her conversation with Dr. Durkheim, Madam, it is a grave situation, but I think you can solve it. Have everything come to you weight the importance of each matter, and see if it is possible by consultation with the respective heads of departments to solve them without the guidance of your husband. In this way, you can save him a great deal. But always keep in mind that every time you take him a new anxiety or problem or excite him, you are turning a knife in an open wound. His nerves are crying out for rest, and any excitement is torture to him. Mrs. Wilson claims that when she asked Dr. Durkham if it would be better for the president to resign, he said, no, not if you feel up to what I have suggested. For Mr. Wilson to resign would have a bad effect on the country and a serious effect on our patient. He has staked his life and made his promise to the world to do all in his power to get the treaty ratified and make the League of Nations complete. If he resigns, the greatest incentive to recovery is gone. And as his mind is clear as crystal, he can still do more even with a maimed body than anyone else. He has the utmost confidence in you. Dr. Grayson tells me he has always discussed public affairs with you, so you will not come to them uninformed. This is staggering. Knowing what he did as an expert in brain pathology, it is highly unlikely that Dr. Durkham would have assumed such responsibility or would have used these words to Mrs. Wilson to essentially say, you take over the government uh, because he needs his rest. But by the time her book was published, Durkham was dead for eight years and he had no rebuttal. Now, could Wilson have been replaced by the guidelines that existed in 1919? The U.S. Constitution's Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6 states, "...in case of the removal of the president from office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president." and the Congress may, by law, provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the President and Vice President, declaring what officers shall then act as President, and such officers shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or President shall be elected since Wilson could not even recognize the extent of his disability, he was certainly not prepared to resign. In fact, he talked with friends about a third run for the presidency in 1920, and Congress did not have the power at that time to remove him from office. Now, what if Grayson or Durkham had revealed the true state of the president's health? One can argue that they would have been derelict in their Hippocratic oath, which includes the words, whatever in the course of my practice I may see or hear, even when not invited, whatever I may happen to obtain knowledge of, if it be not proper to repeat it, I will keep sacred and secret within my own breast." The 25th Amendment was not ratified until 1967. Section 4 says... "...whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments, that is the cabinet, or of such other body as Congress, may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office of acting president." That did not exist in 1919. So far as we know, Dr. Francis Xavier Durkham never discussed his care of President Woodrow Wilson with anyone else, and his private medical notes were destroyed after his death in 1931. Dr. Durkham resigned his professorial duties in June 1925. He was 69 years old. He planned to spend his retirement in doing research of his own choosing. But a few months before he retired, Durham had been elected vice president of the American Philosophical Society. On 9 February 1927, the president of the society, Dr. Charles D. Walcott, died unexpectedly, and Durham assumed the presidency. He took to the job with great enthusiasm. He spent his four years as president, successfully raised the funds necessary for the erection of a new, more suitable building for the society. On 23 April, 1931, Dr. Durkham was presiding over the first session of the general meeting of the society for that year. He was surrounded by many friends and the portraits of many of America's great men. He had just spoken concerning the progress and the ambitions of the organization and expressed an optimistic future. When he was finished with his remarks, he was sitting in Benjamin Franklin's famous ladder chair, invented by the great man himself. Durkheim closed his eyes, put his forehead down to the table in front of him, and quietly died. In his honor, no president of the American Philosophical Society has sat in that chair in the ensuing 91 years. Three months after Durkheim's death, Richard A.F. Penrose Jr. died. I talked about Penrose in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories for March 2022. R.A.F. Penrose Jr. had been in touch with Durkheim about his plans to expand the American Philosophical Society building. He left the organization nearly $4 million in his will. It was invested wisely and the American Philosophical Society now recognizes Penrose's contribution as their largest endowment. The Durkham family plot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Woodlawn section, is not very far from the bell tower. It's marked by a large boulder with the name Durkham carved into it. He lived up to the motto on the Durkham family coat of arms, service, not birth, and nobles. Clara Therese Durgam, M.D., 1858-1934. Neurasthenia was a tricky diagnosis. The term neuro from nerve and thenia from weakness was first used in the early 19th century. But it became a fad diagnosis, especially in the United States, starting in 1869. It was so common in the United States that some diagnosticians started calling it Americanitis. Neurasthenia was a condition with symptoms of fatigue, anxiety, headache, heart palpitations, high blood pressure, neuralgia, nerve pains, and depression. It was said to be caused by a mechanical weakness of the nerves of the body, an exhaustion of the central nervous system's energy reserves because of the stresses of living in a city and competing in business. It was typically associated with upper-class people and professionals in sedentary occupations. Sigmund Freud added a few more symptoms. Dyspepsia with flatulence and indications of intracranial pressure and spinal irritation. Freud, being Freud, tended to blame the condition on improper emissions such as coitus interruptus and masturbation. One of the champions for the treatment of neurasthenia was Philadelphia neurologist Silas Ware Mitchell, whom I have mentioned many times in past podcasts, even though he is not interred at Laurel Hill or West Laurel Hill Cemetery. He was the go-to person for people suffering from neurasthenia, and his remedy was almost always the same, the rest cure and good food one of his patients, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who we now know was suffering from postpartum depression, had a horrible experience under his care. She turned it into the well-known short story The Yellow Wallpaper, in which the protagonist is slowly driven insane by the rest cure's intellectual and social isolation neurasthenia and hysteria had similar symptoms, but the former diagnosis was more frequently given to men, while the latter was assigned to women. As more women entered into the practice of medicine, they worked to remove some of the misconceptions and stigma attached to the diagnosis of hysteria. The word hysteria itself originates from the Greek word for the uterus, hystera. The oldest record of hysteria dates back to 1900 BC when Egyptians attributed the behavioral disturbances to a wandering uterus. To treat hysteria, Egyptian doctors would put strong smelling substances on the patient's vulvas to encourage the uterus to return to its proper position. Another tactic was to have the patient smell or swallow unsavory herbs to encourage the uterus to flee back to the lower part of the woman's abdomen. As late as the early 1900s, there was still a tendency to attach the symptoms of neurasthenia and hysteria in women to varying pelvic disorders. In the 13 March, 1909 edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association, Philadelphia physician Clara Therese Durkham, M.D., published an article entitled, The Nervous Disorders in Women Simulating Pelvic Disease, An Analysis of 591 Cases. Although less well-known than her brother, Dr. Francis X. Durkham, Clara T. Durkham was a well-regarded physician, lecturer, and advocate for women's rights and social causes. Born in 1858 in Philadelphia, Clara initially worked as an embroidery artist before attending the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, from which she graduated in 1887. She worked as physician and an instructor at the Women's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Jewish Maternity Home, an institution dedicated to serving the gynecological, obstetric, and pediatric needs of poor Jewish women. Durkham also taught at the Women's Medical College. She published medical papers on many topics as varied as treating f- typhoid fever to electric treatment of fibroid tumors. She gave numerous talks at meetings around Philadelphia, also on a wide range of topics. Opium poisoning successfully treated by hypodermic injections of strychnine after the failure of other measures, hyperemesis gravidarum terminating in recovery after an induced abortion of twins, diphtheria treated by antitoxin and corrosive sublimate, a clinical report, and many, many more. In December 1909, she even gave a talk on neurasthenia, stating, much like Ware Mitchell, that, quote, The cure for neurasthenia is rest and food. The patient put to bed and not allowed to do anything, not even read, kept from thinking as much as possible, will in a few days begin to eat and sleep well six or seven weeks of rest cure and good food beef and fish and asparagus and spinach no slop foods no fried foods no potato or rice or other starchy foods will result in a cure in addition to her work as a physician Durkham was involved in numerous charitable and social causes She was among the leaders in the Women's Health Protective Association of Philadelphia, an organization dedicated to improving the city's public health. The WHPA was organized in 1893 as a committee of the New Century Club. In 1897, Dr. Clara Durkham joined with other physicians in petitioning for a charter to establish a pay hospital for patients with infectious diseases, especially scarlet fever and diphtheria. I talked about how Scarlet Fever was the scourge of children and teenagers in the late 19th century in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories for November 2021, entitled Teen Angels. In December 1903, Dr. Durkham bought a building at 810 North Broad Street for $10,600, where she also set up her medical practice. In the early years of the 20th century, Clara got involved in the women's suffrage movement and gave many lectures for the Pennsylvania Women's Suffrage Association. She marched with women seeking the vote, and in 1913 spoke at a four-night open-air campaign at Ridge Avenue in Queen Lane advocating votes for women. I can find very little about Dr. Clara Durkham except in the newspapers of the day. But her 1909 article in JAMA is still quoted today. She begins by patiently recounting the symptoms of neurasthenia and hysteria, somatic, motor, sensory, and psychic. She stresses that any physical findings should be considered, but we must allow for variation from person to person earlier physicians had pointed out abnormal pelvic findings as consistent with the symptoms of neurasthenia and hysteria. Durkham points out that, quote, under normal circumstances, the uterus now and then deviates laterally, is often more or less antiflexed, and is sometimes in the vertical position, and again inclines backward to a varying degree until there is present a retroversion. She presented carefully gathered details on 591 patients with symptoms of neurasthenia or hysteria and gave the results of physical exams. There was absolutely no correlation between the patient's symptoms and their pelvic examinations, normal or abnormal. Her article showed physicians how to get away from pelvis-centered findings, which had been leading women to totally unnecessary pelvic surgeries and organ removal in an attempt to cure hysteria and neurasthenia. The year before her death, in the 15 April 1933 edition of the British Medical Journal, A.F. Treadgold, M.D., F.R.C.P., F.R.S.E., had published a review article with the challenging title, so-called neurasthenia. The times were changing, and the vaguely defined neurasthenia was going the way of the four humors and miasma. When Dr. Clara Durkham died in December 1934, her obituary was brief, pointing out that she had, quote, retired many years ago on account of ill health. It mentioned her involvement in the women's suffrage movement and her brother Francis and her half-sister Susanna. Her death certificate says she died at Burn Bray Sanitarium with chronic myocarditis. Burn was the psychiatric hospital outside a town that was established for rich people. I talked about it in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories from March 2022 in the section on Francis Boyce Penrose. Clara Durkham was 76 years old. She had never married. I can find no pictures of Dr. Durkham or the class of 1887 on the web. She was interred in the family plot at West Laurel Hill with a simple grave marker. Susanna Ernestine Durkham, 1876-1943. It was March of 1916. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that war was ravaging Europe. Lip Brothers had a special on women's shoes for $2.45 a pair. And the Phillies were reporting to their spring training camp in Florida. Among the Rittenhouse Square upper crust, word had been building for weeks. People talked excitedly about what they were soon to see and hear. This was to be the biggest, literally and figuratively, musical event in the history of Philadelphia. 34-year-old Leopold Stokowski, conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra for only four years, would lead his organization in the United States premiere of one of the biggest pieces of music ever written, Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 8 in E-flat major, the so-called Symphony of a Thousand. In addition to an augmented orchestra of 110 musicians, there were to be double choruses of 400 voices each and a children's choir of 150 voices. The Academy of Music was building a special stage to accommodate this huge number of people. One chorus of 400 voices was organized by the Orchestra Association and trained by Mr. Stokowski. While Henry Gordon Thunder, yes, that was his real name, assumed responsibility for the second chorus of the same number of voices. This second chorus was made up of members of the Choral Society of Philadelphia, the Mendelssohn Club, and the Fortnightly Club. Thunder, 1865 to 1958, was married to Mary Forney Thunder. She was the daughter of John Weiss Forney, 1817 to 1881. He was a journalist and a political rainmaker. Many people blame him for Vice President Andrew Johnson showing up drunk for his 1865 inauguration. I will talk about Forney and his family, including Henry Gordon Thunder, in a future podcast. They're buried in the river section at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Stakowski had been planning this event for years. He was present at the first performance of the 8th Symphony in Munich on 12 September 1910, which was under the direction of the composer. He had also attended many of the rehearsals. Stokowski was so deeply impressed that he likened his sensations to those which he believes may have been experienced by the first white man when he looked for the first time upon Niagara quote, something of the same feeling of awe, the same flashing insight into infinity I felt before this mighty work of Mahler, end quote. In addition to the massive chorus, there were eight soloists chosen from the finest voices in the city, three sopranos, two contraltos, one tenor, one baritone, and one bass. One of the two contraltos was Susanna Ernestine Durkham, half-sister to doctors Francis X and Clara T. Durkham. Susanna was born on 21 October 1876 to Ernest Durkham, 1823 to 1899, and his second wife, Ottilie Julianne Opperman Durkham, 1837-1923. She was named after Ernest's first wife. Susanna's early voice training in the city was with Nicholas Doty, a popular tenor soloist, composer, and teacher, who was on the editorial staff of Etude magazine. Later, she studied in Berlin under Clara Willenbucher, who was for years assistant to Lily Lehman. After she returned to America, Susanna went on a concert tour with famous Irish tenor John McCormick and consistently got good reviews. In 1916, she went to the Victor Recording Studio in Camden to record Carl Bohm's Still Vide Nacht, or Still is the Night, accompanied by Bernice Lewis on piano. This was backed with Years at the Spring by Robert Browning and H.H.A. Beach. Now, somewhere along the way, Stokowski heard her sing, and he admired her voice. He asked her to be one of his soloists in the Mahler American premiere. She would sing the role of Maria Egyptica, or Saint Mary of Egypt, the patron saint of penitence. In this non-biblical story of the fourth century, Maria ran away from home when she was 12 and she lived as a prostitute for the next 17 years. She made a pilgrimage to Palestine to try and corrupt others with sin. She sold her body along the way to pay for her needs. On the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, she joined a crowd and attempted to enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but was mystically prevented from entering. She saw a statue of the Virgin Mary in the courtyard, and she repented her life of sin. She prayed for the Holy Mother's guidance and then was allowed in the church. Following her conversion, Maria Egyptica spent 47 years alone in the desert until she encountered Zosimus, a monk who left his monastery to spend Lent in the desert. Maria asked the monk to bring her Holy Communion. The next year they met at the River Jordan, where after taking the sacrament, Maria walked on the water from the east bank to the west and told the monk to meet her in the same spot the following year. When Zosimus returned a year later, he found that Maria had died but left him a note written in the sand. She told him that she had died the night of their meeting a year before and requested that he bury her body. In Goethe's Faust, Mary of Egypt is one of the three penitent saints who pray to the Virgin Mary for forgiveness. Her words are set by Mahler as the final saint's appeal to the Mater Gloriosa. Now, local newspapers, of course, gushed about everyone's performance, stating, quote, perhaps the grandest heights were reached in the delivery of the double fugue and the thrilling presentation of the Gloria with four trombones sounding majestically from the top proscenium box on one side of the stage and four trumpets from the same position on the other side at the end of both parts and in the chorus mysticus at the climax of the final scene. In the April edition of Theodore Pressman's magazine Etude, volume 34, number 4, there was a review from a national critic. The festival season in America commences in April, And often runs as late as July. This year, however, the season was anticipated by the festival performances of the Mahler Symphony in March and April. Due to the ability and energy of Leopold Stokowski, the performances were a series of triumphs which redounded to the credit of the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Philadelphia Artists, and the city itself. At first, only four performances were planned, three in Philadelphia and one in New York. These four performances cost approximately $27,000. Over 1,000 performers took part, including an orchestra of 110. Owing to the immense demand for admission, extra performances were given. The work was interpreted with the greatest artistic finish and beauty. The first part of the symphony is a choral setting of Veni Creatur Spirlus. The second, a setting of parts of the second section of Goethe's Faust. Great credit was due to the soloists, Florence Hinkle, Susanna Durkham, Adelaide Fisher, Inez Barber, Margaret Keyes, and Reginald Warren as well as to the assistant conductor, Mr. H.G. Thunder. The Philadelphia performances made the city a mecca for many of the most noted artists residing in America. One extra performance of this work was especially given for the public schools. During the several presentations of Mahler's Ace, Susanna Durkham was heard by more than thirty thousand concert goers in Philadelphia, and another five thousand in New York. Her reputation skyrocketed. Two months after her triumph in the Mahler, she gave a solo recital in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. The reporter described a, quote, deep, rich, pure contralto, truly artistic quality of her interpretations, as well as the natural beauty of her voice. Susanna started giving leader recitals for numerous societies and clubs in Philadelphia, Boston, Newark, and Washington, and in many colleges. She was one of the most sought-after contraltos in the country. She also was teaching and presented recitals of her pupils. They were occasionally announced in the newspapers over the next 25 years or so. There's a story on the front page of the 21 July 1921 Philadelphia Evening Ledger under the headline Brave Contralto Routes Intruder. Fearing that an intruder who had slipped into her home might frighten her aged mother, Miss Suzanne, that's the way they spelled it, was Suzanne Durkham, Contralto, who was also sung with the Philadelphia Orchestra, bravely confronted the man and pursued him when he ran. Down the stairs at her home at 1831 North 13th Street she ran, chasing the man for nearly a square. When the two reached the corner, the intruder was only a few feet in front of Miss Durkham. She spied a milkman and shouted, Stop that man! She explained to the reporter that there is nothing about being a heroine at all. It was, of course, a very unpleasant experience. The man took nothing, however. Everything was in its place when he left. In 1932, Susanna was Secretary of the Philadelphia Art Alliance, which was sponsoring the Eurydice Chorus Award, a competition for music written for women's voices of three or more parts, a cappella or with accompaniment with or without incidental solos. In 1933, the Philadelphia Conservatory of Music announced that auditions for the opera class will be next week. The vocal department is under charge of Susanna Durkham. On 9 June 1943, Susanna Durkham died of heart failure at Lankanau Hospital, where she had been staying since suffering a heart attack two weeks earlier. She had never married. She was 66 years old, and the bulk of her obituary talked about her relationship to Dr. F.X. Durkham. She was interred in the family plot in the West Lawn section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Her name was carved on the front of her mother's stone. Remember that the next edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will be available on the last Friday of April. We will go through the looking glass with some Lewis Carroll connections. Illustrator A.B. Frost, who worked with Charles Dodson on one of his nonsense books. Inventor and founder of RCA, Eldridge Reeves Johnson, who owned the original manuscript of Through the Looking Glass for many years. Charles Sulis, restaurateur whose establishment near City Hall made it the gathering place for political bigwigs. One of his specials was mock turtle soup. And Joseph Widener, heir to the Widener fortune, who became a famed horse breeder. One of his breeders was Mad Hatter, who had been sired by the same horse that sired Mano War. Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill edition, number eight in mid-May, will be on the anthropologist-archaeologist Lauren Isley, a man who went from being a hobo and a drifter to one of the most highly praised academics in the history of the University of Pennsylvania. His story and his writings are riveting. Remember to become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill at West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. You will get discounts on tours and in the gift shop. At least two members only bonus podcasts this year. One of them is already recorded and special tours that include visits inside some of the mausoleums at West Laurel Hill. I am giving a tour of Laurel Hill Cemetery on Saturday, May 7th at 10 a.m. It is designed to be accessible for people in wheelchairs and motorized scooters. We will not stray from the paved paths as we loop out and back from the gatehouse. It will cover the central part of the cemetery, including Millionaire's Row and Really, some of the best views in the city. But even if you are able bodied, I promise you will learn a lot about some of our storied residents. And if you're somewhere in between, we have some hiking poles that you can borrow from the office. I will certainly be using mine. If you'd like to explore on your own, there's a 42 minute audio to guide you through West Laurel Hill from the Barmouth entrance off the Kinwood Trail all the way to the pincoid exit near the Pet cemetery. Contact me, joe at joelex.net, and I will send you the link. Visit us at the cemeteries. You can find most of the activities at the laurelillcemetery.org slash events. There are many guided tours coming up at the cemeteries, along with virtual tours via Zoom. This is Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. My references follow. I thought this was going to be a simple podcast, and it turned into something far more complex than I realized, or what I planned from the beginning anyway. My primary references for Francis Durkham were... Albert P. Brubaker, Francis X. Durkham, Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, Volume 71, 1932, pages 39 to 48. Dina A. Patel and Kenneth G. Swan, Francis Xavier Durkham, A Man for All Seasons, that's from the Annals of Clinical and Translational Neurology, Volume 1, number 3. 2014, pages 233 to 237. Arthur S. Link, Dr. Grayson's Predicament, Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, volume 138, number 4, pages 487 to 494. Edwin A. Weinstein, Woodrow Wilson, A Medical and Psychological Biography. It's Princeton University Press, 1981. Chapter 21, A Massive Stroke and the Politics of Denial. That's pages 349 to 370. And Edith Boulding Wilson, My Memoir, New York, 1938. For Clara Durkham, I used a few sources. David Drummond, "Neurasthenia: Its Nature and Treatment. That's from the British Medical Journal, 7 July 1906, pages 11 to 14. And an article by Clara T. Durkham, M.D., The Nervous Disorders in Women Simulating Pelvic Disease. That's from the Journal of the American Medical Association, 13 March 1909, pages 848 to 851. David G Schuster Personalizing Illness and Modernity Esware Mitchell Literary Women and Neurasthenia eighteen seventy to nineteen fourteen. That's from the Bulletin of the History of Medicine, Winter two thousand five, volume forty nine, number four, pages six hundred ninety five to seven hundred twenty two. It's really a fascinating article. AF Treadgold MD So Called Neurasthenia the British Medical Journal, 15 April 1933, pages 647 to 651. And Edward Shorter, From Paralysis to Fatigue, a history of psychosomatic illness in the modern era. It's from the Free Press, a division of Macmillan Incorporated New York, especially chapters four and eight. For Susanna Durkham, I got most of the information from the newspapers of the day, and I confess I got the information on the details of Mahler's Symphony of a Thousand from Wikipedia. It gave me the information that I needed. So until we meet again, either in person or through podcasts, this is Dr. Joe Lex. Stay safe. Stay well.